Welcome to Radiant. I am also one of the elders here. Uh, my name is Ben Widman. And one of the things we believe here at Radiant is that we're a family of missionary servants sent to be and make disciples that make disciples. And uh, that's our hope, uh, is that we are not just simply coming to church on a Sunday, but we are the church. We live out that identity uh, every uh, day. Um, so we hope uh, to do that together. Um, there's a couple of quick announcements before we jump in. Um, we got a men's breakfast this Saturday, 8 a.m. It's going to happen here. Uh, talk with Tad about that. Uh, he, I love Tad, and uh, if you're a guy here at church, you need to be uh, coming together as men. We need that fellowship. It's, it's healthy, and it's a good way for us to uh, be active and lead out our church. Um, then a week from today on Sunday, we're going to be doing our Thank You Jesus Sunday we're not going to be doing a sermon. I like to say that we are the sermon when we give our thank yous, when we give our praises to Jesus, what he's done. We like, that's a good way to look back at 2023 or even beyond and just see areas that we can praise and thank Jesus. So we're going to pass around the mic and do that. We encourage you, if you can ahead of time, write it on a three by five card is always a good way of doing it. Um, and then we're also, we get to celebrate new life. Uh, Clara Ruth Coria was born two days ago, I think, something like that. So we're excited for that. It's, it's, it's awesome, new life. And if, it's, it's just always a beautiful story of how God works through the miracle of, of life. So we're grateful for that. Um, let me just pray. We're gonna jump into God's word together. Father in heaven, um, thank you that you're present here. Uh, thank you that we can gather as a family, um, that you look upon us with, with mercy and compassion and love. Uh, God, I just um, believe that uh, you want to do a work here through your word in our hearts. Um, so Jesus, help us to just be humble, but also desperate to hear from you. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles uh, to Matthew 20, I'm just going to read the passage uh, through, and, and then we're going to talk, talk through it. So Matthew 20, in verse 17, is where we're starting. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So we're looking at three stories today. Three stories, and, and to help us kind of understand how these stories go together, how they're connected, even how Matthew is intentional in putting these stories together, we first need to step back and remind ourselves what Matthew is about. Matthew is this book in the Bible that describes the life and ministry of Jesus, and he highlights that Jesus, in being the Messiah, that he is the true king and the greatest authority but right before these three stories, Matthew shares a parable. And a parable is like a, a fictional story that's told to prove a point. It's kind of similar, like maybe your dad wouldn't tell a fictional story, but maybe your dad tells a real, real story from his past in order to illustrate a point that he hopes you to learn. So Jesus would tell these parables, these fictional stories to help his disciples know what to live. And that's what Matthew uh, 1 through 16 is about. This, you might have a title above that that says laborers in the vineyard. And not going over that whole parable again, the, the kind of point that he's trying to drive out was to encourage those who follow Jesus to live last for others rather than to live first for themselves. And we get this famous line that even people who haven't grown up in the church may have heard before, which is the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it, and it makes a nice one-liner, but it'd be super helpful to know like, okay, if that's true, how do I actually live this out? Well, that's why Matthew has included these three stories right after the parable, because in many ways it's saying like, okay, if you get what I just taught you, then you'll see how it's going to be walked out. So these three stories are for us to see how this principle is worked out in real life. They're practical examples. They're also perfect stories to look at as we enter into a new year in 2024. If you aren't already, or somehow you've been able to disconnect from society completely, you are probably swamped with advertisements for workout gear, Planners, self-help books, self-starter guides, better investment ideas, and the list could go on and on and on. The new year is a chance for you to be a new you, or as one social post put it, um, and it attributes this to Robert Tew. I have no idea if, that's, if he actually said this or not, but 
It was on Facebook, so it must be true, right? It says, respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy. So New Year's resolutions, people either love them or hate them. I'm kind of a rebel, and I try to say that I don't make them, and so I like start my resolutions like before the New Year or something like that. But if I'm honest, I do enjoy trying to set goals and to, and, and to try and better myself, if you will. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that, unless the whole focus of your life is about you. If that becomes the center of your life, then... Your resolutions really don't have any meaning behind it. And the reason I say that is because when you put yourself at the center, you become self-centered. One, you're falling right in line with what all these companies hope for. They make a profit out of our self-centeredness because they know if they can get you thinking about yourself, they can get you to buy their products. Okay, So that should, also, that should be like an indication to us of what's going on. Not only this, but when we put ourselves at the center of our world, that's exactly how humanity became corrupt in the first place. It's how evil and sin entered into the world. If you go all the way back to the garden, and when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, what he does is he goes to them and says, hey, you know what, if you eat of the, that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. You will be like God. So he gets... He tempts them to put themselves at the center of their world and their world collapses. It ends horribly. Sin is welcomed into the world. And from there, the rest is literally history. So go to the next story of the Bible in Genesis and you've got these two brothers, Cain and Abel. What does Cain do? He puts himself at the center of his story, which results in him murdering his brother. If you've ever had siblings before, like I've, I've told my kids this, like, your little arguments that you're having, that's how, that's how and why nations go to war. Is because when we try to get ahead of others, then we've got to knock someone down lower on a peg if we're going to advance and get ahead. So this, this is part of the normal broken human experience in our, in our world. Because we put ourselves at the center when we believe like that we're all that, and, or... We may be at the bottom kind of suffering and wishing that we were all that. And so the human experience then becomes one of endless seeking and discontentment. So these three stories of Matthew call us to refocus our resolutions. They call us to a real purpose in life that goes beyond just resolutions for one year. It's, it's actually something for our entire life. In these stories, God is asking us to do the very last thing that, that our society would call us to do. He's asking us to live in last place. To live in last place. That we will actually find what we're looking for when we live in last place. So we're going to look at that through these three stories. So in the first one, which is Matthew 20, 17 through 19, Jesus is reminding his disciples for the last time what will happen to, the, to, to him when, when they reach Jerusalem. So, so just to give you a little context, like they have been traveling to Jerusalem for the, the Jewish celebration of Passover. And Jesus has already told his disciples twice that, that there's going to be some things going down in Jerusalem. And he's been telling them privately, like, hey, this isn't 
going to be like what you think. And this third time that he reminds them is the most clear. And, and he, there, there's no like hidden uh, metaphors or anything like that. He's very clear about what's going to happen when they enter the city of Jerusalem. So what we see here in these verses is that Jesus is going to be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes. And these are, are, are religious leaders in Jerusalem who, who really have been consumed with their own agenda and their own world. They put themselves at the center, and Jesus has been threatening that with his popularity. I mean, he even has this crowd, like, gathering momentum and steam, following him as he's going to Jerusalem. And Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to be delivered into their hands, into their authority. He, he then says he's going to be condemned to death. But not only this, not only is he going to be condemned, but he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. These specifically Rome being the, the power, the Gentile power at the time who care nothing about God, the one true God. They're going to mock, flog him, and crucify him. So Jesus is being extremely clear what's going to happen. And then he, he says at the very end of that, that he will be raised on the third day. What Jesus provides here is a perfect template for what it means to live in last place. We, we had a, a guy come and preach here a number of years ago. His name is Jonathan Martin. And he used this simple hand illustration to demonstrate what Jesus was doing when he came into our earth, how he came to live in last place. So if you think about Jesus, he starts at the top. He's been there since the beginning. Jesus is one with the Father. He is completely perfect, completely powerful. And then we're down here, broken humanity in our world. Sin is in our world. It's broken. We've, we've been, heaven and earth are not one together because of the sin. So what does Jesus do? He lowers himself, comes into our world, born into it. We just celebrated that at Christmas. But not only is he born into it, he was, he's born into this world without like title, inheritance, or anything. He wasn't like born into a royal family on earth. No, he was, he was born lowest of the low. He came to serve. His whole ministry is about serving, so he's going even lower. But, but, but it keeps going from there. When he, when, when he dies, he dies the death of a slave being crucified and hung on the cross. He dies the death of a criminal. If that wasn't bad enough, he took on all the evil of humanity. And the right judgment that we deserved from God for the guilty, it was put on him. So he went even lower. And then when we read about him being buried, that like symbolizes the lowest of the low. He went to the very last place in our place. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there because Jesus was raised up. And when he was raised up in power, he was raised to push us up. For those who put their faith in him are brought to the very best place, which is in his glory. So Jesus goes to the very last place for our sake to bring us up out of our, our mess. And so he's the template for us. When we follow Jesus, we follow that same template. We follow that same pattern for living in last place. So as Jesus is the perfect template for living in last place, two disciples become the perfect example of what living in first place looks like. And that brings us to the second story. 
we have these sons of Zebedee, James and John, and they're coming with their mother to make a request of Jesus because they've been hearing Jesus. They haven't like blocked out what's happening, but they're hearing that, okay, Jesus is going to die, and that doesn't make sense in their mind. And they're probably thinking that, okay, this is just metaphor. Like, he isn't actually going to be crucified. Maybe that's just like metaphorical that there's going to be a battle going on in Jerusalem or something, but that raising up that Jesus is talking about is like he's going to destroy Roman power, bring Israel back up to status. And so their goal is, is like, okay, we think that's what's going to happen. So we're going to try and make sure we're in a place of power. We're going to make sure we're in a place of position. And uh, this, their view of Jesus, their view of themselves, and their view of their brothers has been distorted. They're seeing things wrongly. First of all, they have a distorted view of Jesus. You see, they've seen Jesus, these two disciples in particular, they've seen Jesus in his glory on a mountaintop in Matthew 17. They watched him calm a raging storm, or even, even earlier in the story. They, they've watched him heal countless people. They watched him make food for thousands out of a few loaves and fish. And so they expect and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they expect him to be like what, what the Bible talks about in Daniel chapter 7. So I just, I just want to read that. This is most likely what they're thinking. In Daniel 7, verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took a seat. His clothing was... Or sorry, I'm, I'm reading the wrong part of Daniel. Daniel seven thirteen says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of, of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I can imagine if, if I was thinking of Jesus as the Messiah, that this would be more what I'd imagine be happening. And they, they may have been expecting Jesus to come like a Roman Caesar to crush his enemies, to bring his faithful followers to places of prominence when he entered Jerusalem. And we see that the other distortion to their view of Jesus is they believe that he can be manipulated. So, they have their mother make this request for themselves. And we know it's them making the request because if you look at other versions of this story in the book of uh, Mark and Luke, it doesn't even mention the mother. So it's assuming that James and John are the ones making this request through their mother. And so she, she asks Jesus in verse 21, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. I read a commentary. Basically, what James and John are doing is they're being strategic with their mother. Uh, they are, it, it's potentially at this time kind of a cultural thing that's going on here where if a woman, especially a woman in a motherly position, makes a request, it's more likely to be accepted. Or if it's denied, it's going to be less harsh of a denial. 
So it's, it's a strategic positioning, but it's also assuming that this is basically a way to manipulate Jesus. So they have this distorted view. And you'd almost imagine like Jesus, especially after he just was so clear with what was going to happen, would just get so frustrated and angry at them. And yet, how does he handle them in their distorted view? He says to them, first of all, just, just out of clarity, he says, you do not know what you are asking. Like, you, you don't get it. You, it. you don't get what I'm about to do. And then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And this leads to the fact that these two disciples have a distorted view of themselves. They answer that they are able to handle whatever Jesus is going through. And it's so easy to look at that and be like, oh, silly disciples, like, you don't get it. Like, how, how ridiculous that you would think you can handle what Jesus is about to go through. And yet, how often do we find ourselves as followers of Jesus when God gives us a task or he lays something out for us that we think, sweet, I can do that. And, and we, we don't run to the Father in need of strength and power right at the beginning because we think we can handle God-sized tasks in our own power and authority. And that's, that's where they're at at this moment. They're like, yeah, we can handle whatever because obviously you're going to be raised up in glory in Jerusalem, so we can do whatever it takes to get there. And Jesus, again, in his goodness, tells them, guess what, you are going to taste that cup. And that, that cup is referring to suffering. He's like, guess what, you are going to taste that. Maybe not in Jerusalem, but later on, yeah, you're going you're gonna to walk through the same thing that I'm going to be walking through uh, to, for people uh, to be brought near to me. And again, he shows them the template of what it looks like to live in last place. So um, he says, in verse 23. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. (laughs) Jesus is so good in this moment. Like, if I was in Jesus' position, I'd just want to be like, guys, you don't even understand what you're doing. Like, what's wrong with you? And yet what Jesus does is he shows them what it means to honor God and submit to the will of the Father rather than seeking first place. He's like, you know what? It's not for me to grant you. It's for the Father to grant who's going to be at my right and my left. So they had a distorted view of themselves. And lastly, there's a distorted view of others. For, John, for James and John to make this request, they're trying to get ahead of the other ten disciples. They're trying to push them down so they can be raised up to a place of prominence. But the funny part about this, too, is the other 10 disciples, as we read, it says in verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. We we, we know what that's like. When we see someone who's trying to get ahead of us, the first thing we want to do is grab them and pull them back down. Like, how dare you try and get ahead of me? We also do this to people who are, we see that are being prideful. It's It's so hilarious and ironic, is that we'll see someone who's super prideful, and then we'll respond to them with pride. And be like, I can't believe you're so prideful. You know, I wish I could just pull that prideful person down. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you're responding in the exact same way. You, and, and that's when we have a distorted view of others. 
And so what does Jesus do? He shows them what living in last place is by correcting their distorted view. He says in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. I mean, another way to look at this is he's like, look at the world and look at the authority of the world. It's all built on this principle of lording it over others, pushing other people down, trying to get ahead. And then he says, it shall not be so among you. You should not live that way. And he says this thing that's just so counterintuitive. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And he gives himself as an example. He says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, one day Jesus will come in like Daniel 7, and all knees will bow before him. But before that would happen, Jesus had to walk out Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So we see... Twelve disciples, followers of Jesus, who have a distorted vision. They are blind in one sense. So it's little surprise that Matthew, as a disciple of Jesus, would make the next story about two physically blind men. So let's look at the, the very last story of this group of three. They're coming closer to Jerusalem. Jesus, his disciples, and a crowd. They're in a city called Jericho. It's a, it's a wealthy trade city. It's a hard day's walk from Jerusalem, so they're very close at this time. The tension is mounting for when Jesus would go to the cross. And so this ending of the series of stories is two blind men. And the reason why is because the disciples have everything, just like we do today, to learn from these blind men. We don't know much about these guys. We can read in some of the other Gospels one, that one of them is named Bartimaeus. We don't know how long they've been blind for. They could be blind from birth. It could have been some horrible accident that occurred to them. But if you want to find someone who's in last place in the city of Jericho, you, you would go to these two blind men. They are worthless to society. As men, they should be providing for their families. They should be helping society. They should have great New Year's resolutions that they're going to walk out, but they're blind and have to sit on the side of the road asking for money. They're dead weights. Somehow they hear about Jesus. This, I mean, they could have heard of Jesus like a year ago. They could have heard all the stories of the various miracles he was doing. They could have heard at any time from that, of people passing by saying, oh man, did you hear about Jesus? At the very least we know, they, they probably heard of him in, in, a, in a couple of days of him passing by, probably people going on ahead of them. <laughs> Jesus is coming. And they believe something about him. They've come to believe that he's the son of David. And this is unique in Matthew because the son of David is like this marker, this, this name for the Messiah, that he is the, the true king. 
Jesus is their last hope, their only hope, really. I mean, think about it at this time. There's no way for these men to see, and yet they've heard about the miracles that Jesus has been doing, and so when he comes by, it's their only way, the only way for them to be healed. So they cry out and recognize Jesus for who he is, the Messiah King. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They're living in last place. They recognize their weakness, their brokenness, and their helplessness. And honestly, out of all this, if there's, if there's anything you get out of this sermon, it's imitate these blind men. Because you may be here, and you may be weak, broken, helpless. You may feel like death inside of you. And your solution, the solution to find mercy, to find compassion, is from Jesus to cry out to him. It's recognizing that you need his mercy. It's the only way to move forward in life, and it's not just crying out once. This is what's so powerful about this story, is the crowd. I mean, can you imagine? You're already like the scum of the earth. You're crying out to Jesus because you just want to be healed. And the crowd turns around and tells you to shut up. Just shut up. You're not worth it for Jesus to come to you. And they, but what, what does it say? Like, verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. They cried out again. And so we're in, when we're in that place where we feel like, man, I just don't have any way forward, and, and, and the, the voices in your head are saying, like, just give up, don't, don't worry about it, just keep pushing through, through life, that's when we need to cry out again to Jesus, crying out for mercy. God knows the predicament you're in. He knows when we're spiritually blind or spiritually dead. He knows our desperate need for a Savior. It's when we are willing to give up our pride like these blind men, give up whatever little possessions or many possessions that we have and give it all to Jesus because none of that matters. What matters most is to be near the Savior. And so um, Jesus comes near to them. There's an ancient writer, his name's Chrysostom, I think is how you say it. And he says this, let us listen to these blind men who see better than many. They were not able to see the Lord when he came near to them. They had no one to guide them, yet they tried to come near to him. Such is the nature of a resolute soul. It is borne up by the very things that hinder it. And so Jesus comes up to them. And I, I love Jesus because he asks questions that seem ridiculous. He says, like, what do you want from me? Right? What do you want from me? And, and the reason he asks questions like that is he's giving the opportunity for their faith to be displayed. For them to recognize what Jesus is able to do. He says, what do you want from me? And they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus heals them. And we can see just the picture of their faith because it wasn't like they were just simply trying to get something from Jesus because they follow him. They follow him. So how do we live in last place today? 
how do we, how do we live like these blind men did? It starts with crying out to Jesus and living in his mercy. As you, as you think about entering in a new day, into a new year, a new day, a new week, like, instead of looking at resolutions about, like, man, how can I just, like, improve myself for myself's sake, what does it look like for you to live in last place? Which is the best place to be. And it starts in that place where you cry out to Jesus and you live in his, live in his mercy. You live in his mercy, mercy day by day. Are we coming in desperate for Jesus? Or are you fighting against him, trying to live life on your own terms? And, and so perhaps maybe the change for you starts today. Where, where it's that first cry for mercy, where it's like, I'm tired of trying to make life happen on my own. I can't, I can't wear the weight of the world on my shoulders. Get out of first place. Get to the place of the beggars. These blind men crying out for Jesus. And his promise is that he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. When you cry out to him, when you've got nothing left and you recognize, like, I don't deserve any good thing from God. I have fought against him. I've ignored him. I've tried to run away from him, and I'm tired of running away, and you come to him desperate. He promises that you will find life that your faith will be rewarded. Go to last place with him. Die to yourself and live for him. He promises to raise you up. Find peace by crying out to Jesus. Ask him to remove the blinders from your eyes and fix your distorted views. And, and that may be for you if like, you're not a follower of Jesus. This is the perfect text to look at that. And just to, my prayer would be for the Holy Spirit to show you that, like, yeah, you're spiritually blind, spiritually dead. And when you get that, it can be hard, but it's so beautiful because then you find life in the Savior. But here's the other thing. You may have been following Jesus for decades, and it's so easy for us, like the disciples, to get to this place where little by little, we kind of allow our ego to come right back to the center, and it's like we put on blinders on our eyes like, like, that are put on over horses' eyes. It's, it's like we did see clearly, we understood God's mercy, but then somehow we got it into our head that we no longer need his mercy, and then we can live by our own strength and power. You got to start. If you want to live last like he calls you to, you got to live in his mercy. Something that is so big, so grand, that we need it every day. It's his sweet mercy. So my question is, what's, what's helping you, what's going to help you in this next year? Live in the sweet mercy of Jesus. And maybe that's committing to gather with his people. Maybe it's reading his word, prayer, or just, man, sometimes we just need to ask for help from brothers and sisters in Christ. Where it's like, I'm having a hard time seeing, and I know it, and I know I need to see Jesus. Would you help me? Because I'm messed up right now, and I'm having a hard time seeing. So as you think about this new year, asking that question, what, what is going to help you live in the mercy of Jesus? Because when you ask that question, then, <laughs> I mean, honestly, the church 
A lot of times it's like, hey, new year, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, and you like get through two months, and then you lose track of it. it. Because when you start out, sometimes we know it's the right thing, but we're not doing it out of living in the mercy of Jesus and drawing near to him. We're doing it just to kind of make a check mark of a New Year's resolution. The other thing I would say is what's getting in the way of living in the mercy of God? Are you getting in the way? Sometimes our cry begins with, God, I think too much of myself and getting ahead of others. Please help me. Please change my distorted views. Are your plans and goals in the way? Is your calendar maxed out to the point where we're so preoccupied that we have no space to even cry out to God? We're too busy with life to have room and space to do so. Our, our hobbies and pleasures, are they distracting us from making Jesus the center of the world? So it all starts there in this beautiful place, crying out to Jesus in his mercy. But then it moves on. When we get what living in last place is like, it moves on to living as servants and slaves. That's what he instructs his disciples to do. Like, hey, be a servant towards one another. Be a slave. So in what ways this year can you put yourself at a disadvantage to see others lifted up towards Jesus? Start with your family, your, your wife, your kids, your church family, your workspace, your neighbors, your enemies. <laughs> like, this is what Jesus did. How, how do you put yourself at a disadvantage to see others lifted up towards Jesus, because when you get the mercy of God on your life, like you see everything completely differently. When I came to know Jesus, like I didn't care so much what people thought about me. I just was living in the moment of the fact that Jesus loved me. He died for me. He, he was resurrected, gave me new life. I just wanted to be with him. It's so beautiful and so powerful. And then you see other people, and what you want is just for them to taste and see what you've experienced. But, but what happens is, is when we live as servants and slaves, sometimes when we move ourselves into the center, we're trying to do God's work in our own power. And so maybe you're in that place where you've been serving for a long time. And you've become worn out, burnt out. And I, I would like to suggest that if that's the case, because I've seen this happen in my own heart, maybe you've gotten to that place where you've been living in your own strength. And the two indicators of it is, how, is when you look at other people and you're like, man, they're not changing. Like I put so much energy and effort into them and they're not doing anything. And when we look at other people and instead of having mercy towards them, we, we're, we're full of pride. Like that's an indication that, man, we've, we need to go back to that place of mercy <laughs> and, and go back to that good place of like, God, you saved me. You know, and we can end up even blaming God subconsciously. Like, God, why aren't you working? <laughs> when he's been working all the time, it's just that we put those blinders on. And so when we want to live last, we got to go back to that place of living in his mercy, crying out to him like blind men. And then when we get God's mercy, we live as servants and slaves. So I just want to end on this one quote 
wasn't attributed to any specific uh, author, but it says, for to, for to wish to be above all is indeed blameworthy, yet to hold up another above oneself is truly glorious. And that's what Jesus did for us when he went to the cross. And that's why we celebrate communion every week, because Jesus went to last place for us. And so if you're coming in broken, or you're coming in blind, or you're coming in struggling, I encourage you as a follower of Jesus, run the communion, because it's there that we remember that Christ died for us. His body was broken. That's what the cracker represents. His blood was shed for us. And so we celebrate together. We run to communion because it reminds us of the mercy that he had upon us. Um, and, and I just encourage you, as you think about the new year, just be asking yourself, how, how can I cry out to Jesus and live in his mercy? And how can I live as a servant and a slave to help others uh, be lifted up towards Jesus? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, Jesus, we don't deserve any good thing, and yet you are so gracious to us that we are here today, that we are living and breathing. Jesus, that you went to the cross for us a couple thousand years ago, Jesus. That you died a death we deserved, that you were raised again in our place to draw us into life is is amazing. Father, I pray that that just be the song of our soul. I I pray that um, we would be running and and joyous to live in last place um, because we remember your mercy that you had for us. God, it's, it's not ignoring the fact that life is tough or that it's difficult, but it's recognizing that is the case, and so we need you all the more. I pray that our church would be known for this Uh, type of living that you asked of your disciples. It would be known for living in last place. That we'd see people differently because of that. Um, Father, we thank you so much for your word. That you would allow us to go through it uh, as we enter a new year. I pray this in your name. Amen.